Welcome to the Kino Yoga podcast, bringing you the stories of many people who in various ways are attempting to walk the path of yoga. Our intention is to inspire your own practice and commitment to yoga beyond the mat and in all areas of life. We consider this an offering, a service to the community and labour of love. If you feel inclined, any donations are appreciated, just visit our page and click the donate button at www.keenonyoga.co.uk forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest on the Keenon Yoga podcast is Simon Borg-Olivier. Simon has been teaching yoga since 1982. He has a background in traditional Hatha yoga, as well as Ashtanga, Iyengar and the Vini yoga of Desikachar. Accompanying this, he has studied with the wealth of other South Asian teachers in the Tibetan, Chinese and Japanese lineages. Simon has a firm foundation in Western medicine also. After teaching yoga for 10 years, he decided to go back to university to study physiotherapy. And then he became an exercise-based physiotherapist as well as a yoga teacher, which amounted to his third degree in biology, his first being a molecular biology. Since then, as well as teaching yoga around the world, he has become a research-based lecturer at several universities in Australia and otherwise. He also travels internationally, teaching his own method of yoga synergy through a wide range of workshops and retreats each year. So welcome to the Keenan Yoga podcast, Simon. Adam, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Pleasure to have you. Um, so just tell us a little bit how, about how you got into yoga, how you discovered yoga. Well, in the beginning, I started doing things that later I found out were yoga, but I didn't know at the time. For example, when I was six years old, my father taught me how to swim underwater because I wasn't doing very well. I was sinking in my little swimming test and I had to swim 50 meters and I didn't make it. I kept falling down under the water. My dad said, your bones are too heavy. I'm going to have to teach you how to swim underwater. So he taught me, you know, various breath retention exercises. And I got my certificate for 50 meters by swimming underwater when I was six years old. You swam the whole thing underwater? Yeah. 50 meters? Yes, I can still do it today. It's, um, it's... (laughs) That's, that's, that's a lot. Yes, it was, it's fun. Like and then, uh, no, one length. It's a one, one, one length of Olympic pool. Yeah. 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 And then uh, about two years later, we were on the way from Southampton to Australia to emigrate. And I met on the boat a man who became a very close family friend. His name was Basil Brown, who we picked him up in Rhodesia, in South Africa. He was from Rhodesia. Mm. And um, the boat stopped in South Africa and we picked up this wonderful family um, who we're still friends with today. But um, mm-hmm. the father, Basil Brown, taught me Uriana Banda, Nauli and Lauliki, which are these amazing kriyas where you can you know, control your internal organs. And, well, when you were eight? when I was eight years old and of course these careers require you to be able to hold your breath for extended periods so it was something which I'd already been prepared for by my father Mm, mm. and this was something then you know got me really going and I I kept doing them all my teenage years this morning I was going for a um, for a walk with my girlfriend on the beach and we were doing it as part of a program to try and get warm while we were um you know, with not many clothes on in a very cold winter. It's about seven degrees here in the morning. Oh, really? And so hmm. it's, it's, it's quite cold, but it's, yeah, it's quite really nice. Yeah, and we yeah. went to the beach, we took off our shoes, had just a, a singlet on, you know, so bare sleeves. And I'm trying to, I'm about to release a program on how to 
improve circulation, basically for the purpose of getting warm when it's cold. So I said, let's try wow. the system out. And it was so effective <laughs> and so much fun that we then went on for a much longer walk in the, in the bush, in the Australian jungle. And uh, it reminded me of when I was you know, 13 to 17 years old, I used to explore the Australian jungle in a way where I didn't want to disturb the forest. Because you know sometimes when people bash through a jungle, mm-hmm. they use a machete and, yeah. and you destroy yeah. a lot of the jungle by mm-hmm. going through it. So I yeah. thought I was doing this when I was bushwalking. So what I did instead was what I thought the Aborigine, Aboriginal people of Australia, the indigenous yeah. people of Australia would do. And that would be you'd walk naked through the bush. And if you don't hurt the bush, it won't hurt you because it's a very sharp bushland. So right. by walking very carefully and weaving between the trees mm-hmm. and doing all these very, very curvy animal postures inside the forest, it taught me how to actually be, be one with the forest. And I, you know, years later, I realized this was the beginnings of my yoga, physical practice. And uh, not so long oh, after that. Oh, you were doing that, that when you were young? This is when I was 13 years old. Okay, like weaving morning. through the bush. Okay, yes, yes. yeah, definitely your practice looking at online is very much like that, you know. It's very yeah. weird. Yes, yeah, 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 looping. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, and then not so long after that, I had a very interesting meeting with a Tibetan lama who took me on board as like an apprentice for about a year and a half, two years. And he taught me very esoteric tantric yoga techniques. And it was very interesting. And actually... Around that same time, I had a very interesting meeting with the concept of yoga. And that was while I was studying at high school. We did this um, uh, biological sciences study on the nervous system. And I remember reading in a textbook and it said, it said uh, the nervous system of the human body is divided into two main parts. The somatic nervous system, which is that part of the nervous system which you can control with the conscious mind. Then it said, and also there's the autonomic nervous system or automatic nervous system. And and, and then it said, that which cannot be controlled by the conscious mind. Then in brackets it said, except by some Indian yogis. And I went, who are these strange people who can control their unconscious? And it triggered something in me which was really sort of like, Precious to me. And around, the, and I'm not sure whether that happened before or after I met the Tibetan Lama. And around the same time, I saw also a picture of someone sitting pretty much naked on looked like Mount Everest. Uh-huh. And they were sitting in like a lotus posture or siddhas, and the, but, you know, naked in the snow, sitting like this, you know, their chin up in the air, eyes sort of rolling up. And someone told me, this person is doing yoga. They are meditating. I went, meditating, huh? That looks really difficult. Wow, to be naked in the snow and look so relaxed. And I associated the word meditation and yoga as being the same thing. And I also associated it with being something that is really difficult because I knew these people could control their unconscious and that they were also able to sit naked in the snow in these amazingly difficult positions, looking so relaxed. So then around, you know, my 18th birthday, probably, I went to my first yoga class, thinking that I could revisit some of this amazing stuff, partly the stuff that the Tibetan yoga yogi had taught me, the Tibetan Lama. 
But in fact, he was very special. And so when I went to the first yoga class, it was really nonsense. It was what modern yoga is today. And right. I found myself sitting in a posture, which was a simple twist, cross-legged on the floor, looking around the room going, so what? This is not controlling my unconscious. This is not going to allow me to sit naked in the snow. Right. So what is this? Mm-hmm. So I thought it was nonsense. So I, I abandoned it. I thought, yoga, modern yoga, this is, this is not the yoga I thought the yoga was. So yeah. I just ignored it. And then I went off to just be a belligerent university student for a few years. And after my first degree was coming to a, a year end, I realized I wanted to stay at university, but I better do something with my body. So I started doing aerobics, weight training, and a little bit of gymnastics, and a little bit of... What was of, your first uh, degree in? My first degree was in human biology and zoology, right. particularly, like this, right. and, and, and mathematics. But the, um, I started doing you know, things for fitness. I thought it was good to get fit. Yeah. But the things I did did not help me. Like, for example, my, um, my aerobics class, which I got very good at running very quickly around this uh, concrete floor, gave me shin splints. And I ended up getting massive pain in my legs. And eventually they told me I couldn't run anymore. And around the same time, I was doing gymnastics. And in my very first gymnastics class, I tried to do a backflip. And the, the guys told me that it's very simple. They said, just run backwards. And then, you know, you throw yourself backwards into the air and we hit you on the hips and you're just on your backside and you'll flip over. So yeah. I just threw my, I ran backwards and threw myself into the air. But I ran one way and they were the other way. And when I threw myself in the air, I landed on my head and I broke my neck. And the neck oh was, um, it didn't sever my spinal cord. It did cause me right. some nerve damage. Right. But it caused a crush fracture in the neck and it hurt. It put me right off. And so I tried a sword fighting class, you know, like a fencing class, ended up getting stabbed in my shoulders. <laughs> I tried a Taekwondo <laughs> class, ended up dislocating my buttocks, or so it felt like with the first kick. And so my aerobics teacher said, look, you should maybe do some stretching exercises. So we've got a stretch class, and I think that will help your... Um, your you know, shin splints and the other problems you've got. So I went to a stretch class <laughs> and surprisingly it helped my shin. Yeah, yeah, heaps, you know. Surprisingly it helped my shin splints. It got better. That. Yes, yes. And so she, um, she uh, gave me a few other exercises and it was okay. But then one day this teacher in her gymnasium couldn't arrive and uh, the owners of the gym decided that uh, since the stretch teacher couldn't come, they imported a local yoga teacher who they, they figured would teach the same sort of stuff. Yeah. And the yoga teacher was an Iyengar-trained yoga teacher. And this person suddenly turned these simple stretches for me into, this is really good. This is like, she says, press my foot here, turn my arm this way. And suddenly these simple twists were like coming alive. I was feeling warm. I was feeling energized. And it changed everything for me. And then around the same time, this is when I was about 21 years old or something, I met a, um, an amazing teacher called Professor Bim Dev. And he took me on board. Actually, it was just a little bit after this. I started teaching. I started doing a Japanese yoga course, which became then a, a two-year intensive. And then that day offered, offered me to teach. It's pretty unusual at that time, right? To find yoga in Look, the first place, thought, right? It, it was very unusual. Yeah, yeah. And when I started yeah. teaching in the early 80s, it, yeah. we, we had a hall I taught in, and we would, you know, I was taught that you chant Om and you hum and stuff like this. But we had people with placards coming outside the hall oh, after we finished wow. 
saying, repent ye now, this the way of the Lord is here, and this is devil worship, and, and this is something which you shouldn't be doing, it's evil, and going, this is just yoga, I'm just making a humming sound, you know? And I had to really try and make it sound like it was not in any way odd, and that the humming was just going to generate some, you know, sort of vibrational input into my body, which would help me... Um, you know, uh, massage my joints like an ultrasound and help in the increasing of bone mineral density. And right. later on, I found out that humming also helps in the production of nitric oxide and increase the circulation. But, <coughs> pardon me, but I was set upon this path of trying to show that the yoga I was doing had some scientific validity. Yeah, yeah. You know? And around the you same time, I was involved. Yeah. Yes, yes. Around yeah, the same yeah. time, I, I was also enrolled in a Master of of Science and a Master of Arts at the same time. Uh-huh. And the Master's was, was in Molecular Biology. Wow. So I was really doing a lot of research at mm-hmm. the same time as doing intense study and teaching and stuff like this. And uh, I probably, st- I, around that time, I also decided to go visit Iyengar. And around that time in Australia, I also started learning Ashtanga Yoga. It wasn't until another, I think it was about my third or fourth trip to um, India that I actually oh, met. So you went to Pune. You went, you went, I went to Pune. Right. I went many times to Pune to study with Ayanga. Right. And about my third or fourth trip, I also went yeah. to Mysore and studied at the, at the institute there for okay. a little bit. Yeah. Patabi Joyce a little bit. Right. But um, around, uh, around probably 10 years into my teaching, I realized that I didn't really know much. That although I'd been so what teaching, was your practice? What was your practice then? Did you? I mean, I was always intrigued as to whether you actually practiced Ashtanga for any period of time. Or I mean, obviously we were oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, you did. No, I loved it. I loved it. Right. I was doing. I mean, like my my first series was taught to me by Robert Lucas, who was an amazing practitioner, and in Australia. Then when I went to India, I learned Ashtanga Yoga with a guy called Cliff Barber, who you may have heard of. He's yeah. an old man now, yeah, lives yeah, yeah. in the jungle in Crete. And around the same time, uh, Danny Paradise came into the arena. You've heard, you know, Danny Paradise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so Danny, uh, Cliff taught me second series. Danny showed me third and fourth series. And then, uh, but, but by those, by that time, however, I'd already been all the way through Iyengar's book. So I could pretty much do all the poses already. They just had to show me them and I could do them. Yeah. And, um, and uh, I, don't, I didn't really finish fourth series, I don't think. It was a few poses with the legs behind the head that got a bit too difficult for me. But I practiced it for quite a few years and, and then enjoyed practicing with Patabi Joyce when he came to Australia as well. And one of the nicest classes, one of the nicest classes I've ever been to was one in 1996 in Australia where a wonderful woman called Eileen Hall, who was very close yeah. to Matabi Joyce, she invited um, Guruji to come to Australia. And he taught um, a morning, early morning class, which was a primary series, Ashtanga class, primary series. And that was from 5 o'clock till about 8 o'clock because he had to teach 80 people. But then because there was enough people interested, he also ran an intermediate series class, which was from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock or thereabouts. And that's the one I went to. I had to teach from 6 to 8 anyway. So I came straight after my class, left my group in Shavas and drove for 15 minutes and just arrived to the class in time. And that was in the most amazing class because in those days, there weren't many people who could do second series. So while the primary series class had 80 people in it, the intermediate series class only had 15. 
Right. And there were 15 people who came from around Australia, you know, from different states. They came yeah. from uh, Japan, from New Zealand, from Singapore, from South Africa even. You know, quite a mixed group from mm. many different mm. countries. And it was an amazing group, really an amazing group. So that was a really fun experience. And I, of course, you know, met uh, Patabi Joyce and Sharat, did some of Sharat's classes even in the, in the 2000s and stuff like that. It was the did last you? class I went with Sharat, yeah. And, I mean... I think your your kind of particular take is very, very um, inclusive. I mean, you bring in so many different elements. Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. I kind of can't imagine you sticking to one thing for too long rather than kind of synthesizing no. it amongst other things. No. Where did your journey after the, I mean, I've got to say after the Ashtang or, or, or within the Ashtang, were you were doing that as well? That, yes. Well, within when, that period of yeah. the Ashtanga time in between 85 and, you know, probably, I mean, I still do an Ashtanga practice a couple of times a year. Not more than a couple of times a year. I will always teach it on my teacher training courses yeah. to give them at least a few classes where I take them systematically through each of the postures. And then we do at least one class where I actually get um, a recording of either uh, Sharat or his grandfather. And yeah. we actually do the sequence according to the rhythm of the practice of Sharat or his grandfather. And I'll do that in each of my you know, 200-hour, 300-hour training courses still to this day. And but yeah. really, I stopped practicing it regularly around uh, probably full time regularly around 2000, and uh, then you know, kept it up less regularly till about 2010, perhaps. And now it's more like you know, two or three times a year, which right. is still fun. I'm actually about yeah. to release a course on Ashtanga Yoga, which I filmed five years ago, which is about 40 hours of detailed going through each of the um primary series poses and explaining some of the more intermediate advanced poses as well along the way. But it's about to be released. It's just taken five years to edit. That's all. But in the period of the 80s and 90s, I was doing a lot of, of the Iyengar sequences. And I yeah. used to love going through the back of his book and doing, you know, an hour of headstand, shoulder stand first, and then doing all the, um, uh, you know, poses of different days. You do some days arm balances, some days mm. twists, some days all the pure back bends. And I could, I loved them. It was fun. Really, really fun. And in, in my 20s, I would be doing six to eight hours of yoga every day practice. It was really you know, good fun to do. Then my practice lessened a little bit in the mid-90s when I became a physiotherapist because after I was going to say before that after 10 years of teaching, I realized I didn't really understand as much as I'd hoped that although the practice was helping some of my injuries, like I dislocated my knee doing a stupid dancing incident one time, I broke my neck like I told you and uh, you know, I had a few major injuries doing stupid things. Yeah. And so the yoga helped a lot of the healing of these things, but not completely. And I found that the yoga I was teaching and practicing was helping many of my students, but not completely. Mm. So I thought, look, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I need to learn more. So after 10 years of teaching and learning from you know, several different types of teachers, I went uh, back to university for my third degree, which was going to be in uh, an applied science degree in physiotherapy. So I became a physiotherapist, but that was quite intense to be teaching yoga full time, having a full time you know school to run, and uh, you know running doing this whole degree, which involved sometimes doing practicums where, where I had to drive for two hours to a hospital, a long way away, mm -hmm. and work in a hospital for eight hours a day, then come back and teach, and with four hours in the car driving. So it was very intense. So it meant my practice was quite limited in the in the nineties and. It wasn't as much as it was in the 80s, say, for example. But, you know, nevertheless, I kept it up and I've been, you know, teaching and practicing ever since. 
But uh, around, I think, 1985, I met with Shandor Remite, who was a oh, yeah, great right. inspiration to yeah. me from Shadow Yoga. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he didn't yeah, do Shadow Yoga, yoga yeah. when I was working with him, but I worked with him from about 85 to probably strictly till about 93, 95. But, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I'm still happy to to meet up with him whenever I can. And, you know, he's an amazing man. And I'll always be in awe of him because he's 12 years older than me, but I always know that no matter where I get to, he's already 12 years in front. You know? Very new these days. He's one of these people that will keep on learning. And so he's an amazing guy. But I haven't practiced, I never got to practice the the shadow yoga beyond the beginnings of it, just when he was experimenting with it in the late 80s, late 90s rather. But uh, he was a big inspiration to me. And also in the 80s, I met this amazing teacher I started telling you about before, whose name was Professor Bhimdev. And he Uh was uh, the all India gold medalist in yoga in 1972, I think. So he could do incredible things like stop his heart beating, like bend metal bars with his throat or with his eyeball. Like you can imagine, say, like a, a metal bar eyeball. made of steel or iron. And he would, it's like two meters long. He'd put one end on his eyeball like this, the other end against the wall, and bend it by breathing into his eyeball, doing a breath retention and increasing the intraocular pressure enough to bend metal with his eyeball. He can do the same thing with his throat, which I practice a little bit also. But these are the things that, that are not talked about in modern yoga today. Mm-hmm. You know, these, these are the things which were, didn't get quite up to even Iyengar or Patabi Joyce. This is the more real yoga that, um, that is quite phenomenal. I, I, I mean, can, can you teach someone to walk your path? I mean, it seems like you're, I mean, let's say, we can't deny you're very unorthodox in, you know, you haven't stuck to one method or one system, right? You'd agree. I mean, is, is there, I mean, what, do you advise other people to do that? I mean, is there a pitfall in, in I mean, obviously you have a, a strong background and propensity towards this to understand your own path. But I mean, for people listening that are often Ashtanga based and they're committed to a method and a tradition, is there a value in sticking to a tradition or is it good at some point to branch out and synthesize? I mean, your, your yoga is called Yoga Synergy. Yes, yeah. I think now, like I said, I'm in my end of my fifth, end of my sixth decade. You know, like so, I'm I'm just about to be sixty. In other words, it's um. I think there are better things you can do with your life than overstretching, overtensing, overbreathing, and what many people do in, in their practices is what I think this is. A lot of people in yoga made it too much of a aim to to work with the physical at the cost of the physiological, the mental, the spiritual, the emotional. And uh, if I could advise someone else or even live my life again, Mm -hmm. I think I'd be much less interested in those things. I'd probably take my path a lot slower, a lot more patiently. But can you ask that of a 20-year-old? Maybe not. This Mm. is the path that I took, but really in terms of long-term health, I don't think that that path leads to the best long-term health. And I would like to see people acknowledging that we're not, not, we're not natural people. We live in a very normal world, which is very unnatural. And our bodies became very unnatural by the time we started going to school and sitting on chairs Mm. and, you know, living a life of five to 15 hours a day on chairs really significantly hampered our bodies. And so most normal modern bodies are not in a condition 
when they get to 20 or 30 years old, that they can safely do postures, movements, and breath control that were designed for a traditional body, which is one which, where you sit for hours at a time cross-legged on the floor, or you carry things for extended periods with, you know, on your head, or mm. you perhaps squat to go to the toilet or squat when waiting at a bus stop for like two or three hours. You know, these people have got knees, necks, spines, hips, which are very different to ours. And so when you impose the postures of, of traditional yoga on a modern Western body, you don't get a good result. And so when I, when I say don't get a good result, you've probably experienced this from your teaching because you've taught for long enough and you've had enough experience. What you see, and I see all over the world, is that if the average person gets invited to come to a modern yoga class, which, which let's face it, is mostly a combination between something to do with Iyengar yoga, Ashtanga yoga, a little bit of Desika Cha, Vini yoga type thing, added a little bit of Pilates and uh, modern fitness to it, add a bit of rock and roll music or some sort of modern music to it to make it a bit more fluid and movement orientated, mm. and add a whole bunch of other stuff to it. It is not really traditional yoga. And what happens is the name already will put people off. If you say to someone, come to a yoga class, out of 200 people you ask, 100 will not come just from the name alone. Because if they're interested in fitness, they know there's much better ways to get fit and strong for a start. And if they're interested in spirituality, it may not be their spirituality. Just the name alone will put people off. But 100 people out of 200 will probably try the first modern yoga class. And then out of that 100 people who try their first class of any of the modern styles of modern yoga, I mean, we're generalizing here, and there are obviously some better teachers, some worse. But the statisticals, the stats that I found is out of 100 people trying their very first class in modern yoga, 50 people will never come back after the first class for whatever reason. We can discuss the reasons later. And of the 50 that remain, there's only five left at the end of the first year. So of the first 100 people to try a class, only one, so of the first, out of every 20 people to try a yeah. class, in other words, only one in 20 survives the first year. And that one in 20 will usually then decide at the end of the first year to join a teacher training course. And within you know, a month of that, they're a registered trainer, supposedly, which completely is absurd, of course. You know, because really the potential for yoga is so great. You know, uh, you know, many yoga teachers will say, come to me, we can help you with your knee problems, back problems. But really, if anyone has a knee problem or back problem, wouldn't it be better to go to a physiotherapist? You know, or many yoga teachers might say, look, you know, come to us, we can help you with your menstrual cycle or your digestive dysfunction or your reproductive hormonal immune system. But really, if you've got a problem in your digestion, menstruation, aren't you better off going to see a doctor? You know, someone who's trained for six years. And then many yoga teachers will say, come to me because we can help you with stress, anxiety, depression. But really, if you've got stress, anxiety, depression, wouldn't you be better off going to a psychologist or a psychiatrist? You know, so imagine this. Imagine going to, you know, having a problem with your anatomy, physiology, or your mentality and deciding you've got to go see a doctor, psychologist, and a physiotherapist. And you see a sign on the door saying, this person advertises as a doctor, physiotherapist, and psychologist. They've got them all. And you walk in and they go, great, I'm so excited to practice on you. I've just finished my one-month doctor physiotherapy and, and psychology training. Now I'm ready to practice on you. I mean, it's laughable, isn't it? 
And, you know, and in my world of physiotherapy, I get so many people laughing at me because they say, you know, so many yoga teachers are trying to do stuff, which is mm-hmm. so really like, they don't understand what they're doing. They haven't had the anatomical background to understand it. And the same can be true about the medical stuff. You can't be someone who's aspiring to really help people with just one month training. And you know, often those people only have done one or two years of yoga. Obviously, the more you do, the better you get. But it really helps if you've had some proper training. So you know, I'm a long way into it, and I'm, I'm not a master. I'm getting mm. there. Each day I get a little bit better, and I continue to try and learn and train and still go to lessons. So, yeah. So what's the, I mean, what's the crux of your method now, and, what, and also what's the aim of your method? Okay. The aim of my method now is to try mm. and get some holistic health into the body. And that means you've got to get integrated health between your physical body, meaning the muscles and joints, your physiological body, meaning the um, health of your circulatory system, nervous system, digestive system, immune system, reproductive system, your hormones, your blood flow, your nerves, nervous system. And your mental body, which of course is the health of your mind, your ability to think clearly, your ability to choose happiness as a default state rather than be in a state of depression, misery, anxiety, or stress like this. And so what we want is all three of them, physical, physiological, and mental, being addressed by the practice. And so what I say to people is that, you know, that's not even the aim of yoga. If the aim of yoga is to say, for example, recognize that our individual consciousness is one with the universal consciousness. That's a, mm-hmm. a lofty goal, but it's, it's a good aim for yoga. When you look at the yoga text, that's one of the ways they say it. Not to do anything. Yoga is just to realize that we live in a world which is connected, that you and me, Adam, are relatives, that somewhere along the line in our family trees, we'll find common ancestors and everyone in the world will be able to do this. And that actually, if we go back far enough, we'll really realize we are related to the animals, to the trees, that we're related to the earth itself. And the world is a totally connected place. And of course, this is what modern yoga says, that we're living in a totally connected place. And all you have to do to get yoga is to realize it. And so how are we going to realize it? Because if you didn't realize it, I think that if we as a, a, as a you know, world of people realized that the world is really connected and behaved as if it's connected, there'd be no war, there'd be no uh, you know, problems, there'd be no mm. ecological disasters. Yeah. But it's not going to happen overnight. I believe it can only happen if people make the very most important first step. And the first step is to have that sense of connection inside your body. And to realize that our head is connected to our bodies. And the way we're going to do this has to be a way where you do inside yourself what we should be doing with each other if you want to connect with someone. So if you want to convince someone of something, if you want to get your point across, you can't shout at someone. The only way someone's going to listen to you is if you talk to them in a way where you share good energy and loving information and you befriend them. And you treat them with what we could call the, um, the yamas and the niyamas. And to me, that's best epitomized if you look at the one connection in our life where you really see that someone feels totally connected to someone else. And that is the connection you see between a mother and a young baby. 
when the baby comes out of the mother, the mother still thinks the baby is part of her because this thing grew inside her, it was part of her, used her cells, her blood. And so that resonance between a mother and a child, which is a little bit of a one-way street, the mother identifies that child as self. The mother would give up her life for that child. The mother would sacrifice total love and energy, and it's sharing. The mother is shares good energy and loving information basically for the rest of their life. I mean, you know, my mother still treats me like I'm six years old, and I'm sure that you know, most people can relate to this. A father will also feel this to a certain extent, but you know, mm-hmm. I did a good five minutes worth of work for my children, each of them, but it's not like what the mother does, you know, that making. So I, I figure that if you can get something like that happening inside your body, you're going to begin to get yoga. Because what we've got inside our body is not one consciousness. What we've got inside our body is a group consciousness. Because each of our cells, if you take any of our cells, as I used to do as a molecular biologist, we take the cells of a human or cells of any animal, and you put them in a Petri dish, and you grow them in a tissue culture. What you observe is if you separate the cells, every cell acts like it has a mind of its own. And suddenly, instead of one consciousness inside our bodies, we're realizing that we're a a group consciousness of 50 trillion individual consciousnesses all working together, supposedly, as one. And I figure that perfect health is really when every cell of the body treats every other cell of the body like a mother treats a young baby. And to me, that would be personal perfect yoga. And you're not going to understand how to deal with other people until you can deal with yourself. So I feel our purpose in our physical practice is to recognize that we're connected. And to do this, we have to share good energy and loving information inside ourselves. And on a physiological level, that is share good energy means make the blood flow. Because that's what transports energy. And Mm -hmm. loving information is to do it in a way where the parasympathetic nervous system dominates. Parasympathetic nervous system is your rest, rejuvenation, regeneration, relaxation mode. Whereas the other part of the autonomic nervous system that people often talk about is the sympathetic nervous system, which is also known as the flight, fight, freeze, or fear Mm -hmm. response. Now, if you say that to someone, the flight, fight, freeze, or fear response is what happens when you're being attacked when you're running away from a foe. And at those times, all your energy goes to running away or fighting, which means you turn off all non-essential functions. You turn off your immune system, reproductive system, digestive system, and the dominant emotions become fear, anger, aggression, lack of safety. Are people practicing yoga too hard then? They're kind of shutting down their parasympathetic nervous systems, right? Yes, mostly they are. Because okay. there's, there's two things going to happen. Because what's going to happen is, what are the signs of a sympathetic nervous system overload? Well, one of them is increased heart rate. Mm-hmm. If you get your heart rate increased, that's not a sign that you're moving blood easily. That's not a sign of a good circulation. That's a sign of poor circulation. And in fact, uh, a really fit person, someone who runs really fast without their heart racing, is called fit. But don't you have to do that before you, then your heart gets used to it that's and gets stronger? That's the mythology. No? That's the mythology right, okay. of what we're told. All right. That's what we're how, do you, told. how do you get to be really fit without, your, without raising your heart? Well, there's 11 other ways to move blood through the body other than the heart. Okay. I'm about to release a course on this. 
you know, an online course, which is how you can move blood through the body with 11 other ways other than making your heart beat faster. And if okay. you can learn these, these are the secrets of Hatha Yoga, the secrets of how the yogi sits there naked in the snow. They're not making the heart beat faster. The yogi says that they count their life not by the number of years they live, but by the number of beats their heart makes. The yogi mm. counts their life not by the number of years they live, but by the number of breaths they make. Many, many people in the modern world say, you've got, to, you've got to get your heart rate up. You've got to breathe more. No. Fit, healthy people keep their heart rate low and they breathe less. Unfit, unhealthy people walk very slowly going... <laughs> boom, 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 boom. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Or some people in the world of modern fitness, modern yoga, pretend to be unfit by standing in a very simple position, constricting all their muscles and making a noise like that. <laughs> over breathing, over tensing. What are they doing? Just pretending they're unfit. So how do you, how do you get fit without raising your heart then? How, how do you do these conditioning movements? Because you're doing some quite strenuous things in your videos. But you're not, your, well, heart isn't, your heart isn't raised, and okay. you've obviously conditioned your body. I mean, it's very yes. much conditioned. Yes. Right? How okay. do you do that? Well, pre predominantly, most of my practice is very, very simple. But if I show you my very, very simple practice, which I've put online often enough, yeah. it looks too easy for most people. So most people go, that's boring. I can do that. What does he know anyway? All he's doing is moving his arms a little bit. So what I have to do... Every once in a while, I throw in a difficult move, move yeah. balance on one arm, balance on yeah. two arms. But that's only a very, very, very small part of my practice. The right. predominant part of my practice is actually very, very gentle movements, which I do in a very meditative, fluid way. And so that's the secret. And even if you want to be, say, trained as an Olympic runner, you know, there's very clever people who teach Olympic runners. And what they teach them to do and what they found is the best way of training someone to get to the next Olympics is you teach them. So if they're running for, say, 100 minutes, only for 10 minutes would you get their heart rate up to the point where mm. they can't talk properly. But for mm. 80 or 90 minutes, they should talk like you and I are talking now. Any Olympic runner knows that. Any trained athlete knows that. But, of course, the modern lay people don't. They think that for 45 minutes you should just stress out. That just causes ill health. Mm. So the secret of improving is to do something super easy for a long period of time. But right. that's super easy for most people is too boring. What's another right. word for boring is meditation. So what you really need to do is learn how to do something that's really boring but not be bored. But what yeah. most people are working on is doing something really stressful where you shouldn't actually be stressed, but they're getting stressed. So most people's yoga is something which is too stressful and they're actually getting stressed out. Mm, most people's mm. meditation, which they perceive to be different to yoga, is something doing too boring and they're getting bored mostly. That's why most people don't do meditation. And let's face it, the ones who actually enjoy sitting still in an uncomfortable position, getting a bit cold and numb, they're not moving blood. Because often they're sitting there with blankets around themselves. Real meditation is not just sitting still and turning your mind off. Real meditation has five important features. And real meditation, you know, the translation of the word meditation is into Sanskrit. There's only one word. It's yoga. It's not dhyana. Dhyana is one part of yoga. But the real meditation, the word yoga, mean the same thing. Meditation's got five main parts. 
First part is it must be a sustainable practice, something you can do for many hours. Like after it says Stira Sukha Mastanam in the Patanjali text, it says, keep doing this till it's effortless. For a long time. And they say three hours is a good time to judge it by. So first thing in meditation is it must be sustainable. Second thing is it must be engaging, meaning that it's engaging your mind to the point that you stay in the here and now while doing it. So it's exciting enough to be interesting to do it, but it's also going to be very, very calming. But if it's too calming, it becomes boring. So it's got to be exciting enough, but not too stressful and calming enough, but not too boring. And then it's also got to be effortless. In other words, there's no sense of stretch or tension or heart racing or breathing. You see, most people don't realize that when you feel a stretch, the body does not respond favorably. Because what we want is to feel no stretch. Like when you cross your arms like this, I mean, I can ask anyone to try and cross their arms right now. And I say to you, did you get a good stretch in your elbow here, in your back of your elbow? And they go, no. Imagine if you did. If you bent your elbow to touch your hand to your shoulder and you go, gee, that's a good elbow stretch, your next thought would be, something's wrong with my elbow. Imagine also if when you bent your elbows, you feel your biceps tense up. I mean, normally when you bend your elbows to cross your arms, you're not feeling any tension. Imagine if you did. You go, oh, that's a good biceps workout when I cross my arms you'd know also that something's wrong with your biceps. So whenever we feel stretch or tension in our body, subconsciously the body goes, something's wrong. Imagine if you walked and every time you took a step, you felt a stretch in the front of one hip and the back of the other. You'd go, something's wrong with my hips. What you want is to not feel stretch. As soon that as you sounds feel very stretch, pleasing, but how do you get better at it then? How do you get well, better? I mean, is... people, you know, obviously people want progress in their practice. Yes. You, you know, yes. your practice... Your practice does seem very gentle and, and you know, and to that end, very enjoyable. But how do you actually make the progress that people want to see in their body? Yes. Well, people have this mythology that says no pain, no gain. They live right. with that. That's one of the biggest mistakes. Yeah. You know, and another one that people live by is from our friend Charles Darwin, who was one of these uh, humanists back in the 19th century, who said it's a survival of the fittest. So we could justify the British Raj going around the world and conquering nations all over the world on the idea that they were the strongest nation. It's a political thing. Survival of the fittest is not the way evolution works. Evolution and nature works through cooperation. Survival of the fittest is a nonsense theory, but we live by it. We live by these three dogmas, survival of the fittest, which is nonsense, this idea of no pain, no gain, which is nonsense, and also this idea of if you're good, you're going to go to heaven. But if you're bad, you're going to go to hell. And really, unless you struggle hard and suffer, you're going to go to hell. And this mythology, which comes in with the monotheistic religions that dominate our world, and even partly the mythology that dominates places like India with this idea that if you're good, you're going to come back as a high caste. If you're bad, you're going to come back as a low caste. Because really, what is the reason why a real, honest, intelligent, adult person doesn't kill someone? Why? because they're scared of going to jail or scared of going to hell. No, the real reason we don't kill is because we know it's just not right. You don't need to be offered a reward or be threatened with a punishment to do good. We do good for good's sake. So when they start threatening us with heaven and hell, with a better life or worse life or the next life, this is treating people like children. And it's okay if you're talking to kids 
to say, don't cross the road, but this car's coming, I'll give you a smack if you cross the road, because there's a higher purpose to tell someone don't cross the road, you know, as a, as a three-year-old child. Give them a smack. They learn, don't cross the road. But adults should know, we all know, that we are not doing things to get uh, a better afterlife. We're doing things because there's a right reason to do things. But nevertheless, our mythology has crept into our daily life and we believe that there's no pain, no gain, no improvement mm -hmm. unless you suffer, that there's you know, survival of the fittest, and this is not the way nature works. And so you asked before, can you actually improve? Yes. Yeah. And if you do things like, if you move in a certain way, I mean, I could, I could show anyone listening how you can get flexible and get a pose much easier by simply moving a different way. So right. if you, for example, move into a pose actively using your own muscles, what this does is it stimulates a relaxation reflex in the body. You see, many of the times when you come into a stretch and you feel a stretch, what mm. you're feeling is not a lengthened muscle. You're feeling a muscle which has, you've lengthened but has become tense because of the way you entered the posture. Mm -hmm. you, you know, most people are familiar with the knee jerk reflex when the doctor hits a hammer yeah. on the knee and the knee jerks up. You see, okay. an external force hit the knee and gave it a sudden unexpected stretch and the knee responds to any unexpected stretch by tensing up. Right. So if you do a hamstring stretch by taking one leg in front of you on the floor yeah. and you bend forward over that leg, what makes you bend forward? Usually it's gravity. So gravity is an external force to the body and it acts on the hamstrings like the hammer acts on the knee and it will make the hamstrings tense up because right. it's an external, it gives a stretch reflex. So when you feel the stretch in the back of the leg, that's not simply a lengthened muscle. That's a lengthened muscle that became tense via a stretch reflex. So all you've got to do to get rid of that feeling of stretch is get rid of the stretch reflex. And the simplest way of doing that is by moving actively into the pose. Mm -hmm. So if you lift your foot to your head rather than drop your head to your foot, then it doesn't feel as difficult. For one thing, you won't go as far probably anyway because you're stiff. But also the muscles that will, that will um, activate the front of the thigh, once they're active, relax the back of the thigh. Now, we how do, do you describe a forward fold then? How, how, so just, just to practically kind of um, shed some more light on that, how would you describe actively getting into a forward fold? Well... For the hamstrings alone, one way we do it in everyday classes, which is something which Mr. Iyengar brought into the classes, was he said, pull up your kneecaps when you're doing a straight-legged forward bend. People are familiar with that, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's a very common thing. Iyengar was the one who discovered that. What he's doing is he's inducing a reciprocal reflex. By pulling up the kneecaps, he's tightening the quadriceps, the muscles at the front of the knee. And those muscles are used for straightening the knee. And when, a, when, when the muscles are activated which straighten the knee, that sends a signal to the spinal cord that says, we at the front of the knee are trying to straighten the knee. Can you at the back of the knee please relax the back of the knee? And so you can tell someone to um, pull up the kneecap, but often that just causes tension. Or you mm. can make someone pull up the kneecap. So what you do, what I do, is one thing is, you know that posture in the Ashtanga practice, which is at the end of the one-legged uh, Panagrashtasana cycle, where they, you lift one foot in the air, and then the last posture, you let the hand go, and the leg is supposed to stay there by itself. Yes? Kutita has the Exactly. The new lumbar version, the unsupported version. 
That posture, right. if you do that posture first, any hamstring stretch afterwards is easier. Right. Because that posture will automatically force you to pull up the kneecap. You don't have to tell someone to pull up the kneecap when they're doing that posture. It happens don't automatically. You it, don't you think it all, will also contract the hamstring, though? Like kind of pull up no. on the hamstring? No. It makes the hamstring relax. I mean, the hamstring exactly is still stiff. Right. Right. It makes the hamstring more. So you can test this. You know that posture, right? So what you do is you do Parshvottanasana. You know Parshvottanasana? It's the one-legged, straight-legged hamstring stretch. So you, you do your right leg go forward, and then you bend forward over your right leg. First, do it passively. Don't pull up the kneecaps. Then test how it feels. Then stand up, and then lift your leg up in the air to that unsupported leg in the air, Padangoshtasana. Hold that for 30 seconds. And it won't feel like you're stretching when the leg is in the air. You'll just feel like it's hard work because the leg's in the air. But you can focus on relaxing while your leg's in the air. Then yeah, go back yeah. and do Parshvottanasana on the same leg. It'll be easier straight away. Because the one in the air was causing the back of the hamstring, the hamstring itself to relax. It's called reciprocal inhibition. It's called reflex reciprocal inhibition. It's, it's using one muscle group, the shortened muscle group, to reciprocally relax the lengthened muscle group and when you do that then, basically by moving actively into a posture, you don't feel anywhere near as much stretch. That's one method. Okay. I'm, I'm conscious that we're going to, I'm not going to get hardly any of my, um, my questions through because um, you're I'll so descriptive. Yeah, no, no, not at all. Um, it's, it's very enjoyable. I just wanted to specifically ask about your practice, which was, well, it is very fluid and more, are you doing yoga? It looks more like Tai Chi. Um, and what are the benefits of, of the, the hmm, let's say, the spiraling or the kind of circular movements that seem to be quite qualitative of your practice, as opposed to, say, a lot of our listeners who are, uh, you know, quite into the method of Ashtanga, obviously, and it's quite a linear practice, quite blocky, quite forward and back. Yeah. Can you explain yeah. a little bit about your approach there? It's the circular movements mm. more resemble how energy moves through the body. Because right. the word circulation tells you it's something to do with creating a circle, doesn't it? Yeah. So if you want energy to flow, I mean, we're talking prana here. If you want the prana to flow, energy does not flow in straight lines. If you go back and forth into a pose, you destroy the energy. So like, imagine you're driving a car and you've got to go to, from two points, A to B, say, right? And they're straight lines. So you go forward and you stop, reverse backwards and you stop. And you do this quite fast, the faster you go, the more you have to accelerate and then the harder you have to brake and then accelerate back in the opposition and brake. You can imagine this is going to waste petrol. It's going to also waste your braking power and it's very jarring on the body going back and forth, right? But imagine if you have two more places to visit, which are at a perpendicular axis to the first axis you're traveling at. So now you're traveling to points C and D, which are going in the opposite direction. So if I'm going left and right, say, for example, mm -hmm. or up and down, both of those are jerky move movements. But if instead I drive through all four points, it becomes a circle. Right. And then when I drive in a circle, I still visit all four points, but there's no jarring in the body. There's no need to use the accelerator beyond the initial starting point. There's no need to use the brake. So it's like you driving your car in a circle. Then you can keep the, you can save brake and accelerator. And what you start to get is a centripetal force coming into your body as you turn, which actually builds energy up. 
So that's why my movements are all circular. So I can still practice. I still practice uh, the, the postures of modern yoga. So when you see me in a posture, from a distance, it looks like the same posture everyone else is doing. But how I come in and out of that posture would to someone else perhaps say he looks mm. like he's moving like he's moving in Tai Chi. But mm. is movement mm. not allowed in yoga? I thought salute to the sun was one of the most important things. Because many people, when they see me move, go, he's moving. He's not stationary. But salute to the sun is allowed, and what other things are not allowed? <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> and the, you know? the, other, the other thing I wanted to ask you is, um, you speak a lot about the correlation of the deeper kind of psychical energy in, um, yes. and, and kind of contacting the kind of parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system, etc. How does the physical postures manipulate that deeper energy? Okay, so... When you want to manipulate the internal energies of the body, you can't block them. So say, for example, my purpose is to improve the flow of, of uh, blood through my body and also the function of the parasympathetic nervous system, which is this rest, rejuvenation, relaxation mode. Well, first of all, I've got to stop doing the things that block energy and cause stress. So what blocks energy and causes stress? Five things. Too much tension. Too much stretching or inappropriate over tension, uh, unbalanced postures, too much breathing, too much thinking, and too much eating. So straight away, if you just tense less, stretch less, breathe less, think less, eat less, already energy and information flows a lot better through your body. <laughs> okay. Then you have to do the things that encourage the flow of good energy and loving information through your body. When I say good energy, I mean healthy blood flow without the heart racing. Loving information is a dominance of your parasympathetic nervous system. So what encourages that is you move actively. Initially, is the first part of your movement. Don't pull your hand from one place to the next. Move your hand with your own muscles. Don't grab your foot and lift it into a lotus. Mm. Put your leg into a lotus with your leg. That's how the Indians do it. Don't pull your leg behind the head. Lift your leg behind the head. And if you can't, don't worry about it. Don't force you yourself. Yoga, yoga from, from your perspective is a lot simpler than we've been conditioned to, to look at it. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, mean, I know Indian yogis who can put their legs into Kandasana without using their hands, put their legs behind their head without using their hands. If we all started very early, if we lived a natural life, we could do it. But you can't compensate you know, mm. for your unnatural life with two hours of yoga every day because you've got 22 hours of very unnatural yoga. Sitting right. for 5 to 15 and, hours yeah, in a chair yeah. and then spending eight hours in a soft, cushy bed, you're not going to compensate for it. But how does your practice and your perspective on yoga flow out into daily life and inform that? It flows into my daily life because mm. my whole practice is about creating a circulation of good energy and loving information inside my body, which I'm sharing with my 50 trillion cells. So then the message I'm getting is share good energy and loving information, which is why then everyone I meet, I also want to share good energy and loving information for. And with, it reflects in my daily life. It also, as I'm practicing, what I'm trying to do is not make myself suffer. I'm trying to feel good. And what I'm trying to do right. is share love inside myself. I'm making love to myself. And what this gets me good at doing is not, not receiving love. I'm practicing giving love. And when you, when you really show love to yourself, it's a very nice feeling. But what you're getting really good at doing is not receiving the love. You're getting good at giving love. You're getting good at actually feeling better 
you're getting more energy at the end of the practice. You see, if you work out, what you're doing is getting rid of your energy. Yoga is a work in. Real yoga, you work in. So that at the end of the practice of a workout, you have less energy, less um, yeah. mm-hmm. physical. You want, to, you want to eat more food, you want to sleep more. At the end of a real yoga practice, you should have more energy and want to eat less and sleep less. What do you reckon then about food? What, and what's your, what's your guidance? What are your tips on food? Don't make any sudden changes in your diet. But if you do uh, make changes in your diet, do it gradually and do it with uh, the right type of practice at the same time. And the right type of practice for me is one that encourages the flow of good energy and loving information through the body. And to do that, you have to learn how to breathe less. The biggest secret of, of diet, the one that's the most well-known about diet, is that the only proven diet is the eat less and you'll live longer diet. So to learn how to eat less calories is very difficult for most people. But if you can learn mm. to breathe less than normal, it's very easy. You just don't get hungry. Because most of the time, we're breathing too much. You know, fit people, like I said, don't breathe very much while doing a lot of exercise. In fact, if you measure how much air most people breathe every minute, uh, you measure the number of breaths per minute times the volume of air per breath. And it comes to about the average person breathes 10 to 20 breaths per minute, at about maybe 200 to 500 mils per breath, which means the average person will do about five liters of air every minute. Say 10 breaths, 500 mils each is five Uh liters. And Mm -hmm. you can see any medical textbook will tell you this, that normal people breathe about five liters of air per minute. Sick people breathe 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. Healthy people breathe less, right? Now, Mm. if you are trying to do a breathing exercise and you breathe a full lung of air, How many milliliters or liters of air are there in the average lung? Five liters. A big person might have eight. A small woman might have three. A large man might have eight, say. The average person has about five liters. So by coincidence, if such a thing exists, we have a lung volume which is equivalent in size to the amount of air you're meant to take per minute. So if you do more than one full breath of air per minute, you are over-breathing. Now, you've tried enough pranayama, I'm sure, but you know that if you inhale for 30 seconds and exhale for 30 seconds, that's possible for most people maybe once. But if you try and do that for an hour, that's a pretty intense pranayama workout. That is mm. base-level pranayama. Unless you can breathe less than one full breath a minute, you're not getting any physiological benefit from your breathing practice. And I you think I heard your, yeah, you're saying that that's how you go into pranayama, by, by that kind of... Um, emphasis on slowing the breath and then breathing longer, right? Learning how to breathe less well, than normal. Plenty hours than breathing less than normal. That, that would be you, paradigm. Yeah. yeah. Rather than kumbakas and breath holds and that kind of thing. You can do kumbakas and breath holds. It's fun. Right. But they have to be significant. Right. Know, so, and, and most people often focus too much on the kumbaka, but it's actually good to practice the breathe in and breathe out. You know, so you go to a, a typical yoga class, the teacher will say something like, Everyone stand up, take a deep, long breath in and deep, long breath out. And you go, well, that's not long. That's like three seconds in, three seconds out. For me, a long breath in is I breathe in for two minutes, breathe out for two minutes. Very, very slow. Hmm. That's slow, isn't it? But long is not three seconds in. You can breathe in for two minutes. That's about my maximum. And probably people can do more than that. 
You can well, Google Iyengar and Pranayama. It's pretty good. But you can Google <laughs> Iyengar good. and Pranayama online. Yeah. You find the video of Iyengar demonstrating inhale, yeah, Jai Pranayama, yeah, yeah, one yeah. minute, exhale, one minute. Yeah, yeah. 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 I can do... He's in front of the conference. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I can do maybe one breath in, one, one minute breathe in, one minute breathe out for about an hour maybe. Right, right, that's, that's, that's but that's pretty good. About my for an hour time. and you do that. That's a, I mean, that's a lot of practice then. I mean, how many mm, hours yes. of practice a day are you practicing? Very little. Because I've got really? a family. I've got, to, I've got to feed my family. I've got to work. I can't teach now. I'm not able to travel around the world. So I'm, when, I, when I travel, I practice with my students and I'm very right. fit and healthy. When I've been the last six months sitting at home, I'm mostly on my computer trying to work with my students online overseas. So I'm practicing as not as much as I'd like. But mm. what I'm happy to say is the practice that I do now for five minutes does as much as the practice I used to do in the 1980s, 90s for two or three hours. I get the same effect in five minutes now as I used to in two or three hours before. Sounds pretty good. That's effective. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I'm trying um, to maintain my physical, physiological, and mental bodies all three at the same time, which is tricky. I would love to do more, but it's a time thing, you know? Let me just ask you what, what your kind of view of yoga philosophy is. I think you touched upon that a little bit. Um, you have anything other to say about the linking? Do you, talk, do, you, do you teach yoga philosophy or do you link it? I love teaching yoga philosophy. Right. You know, it's like mm -hmm. I said, the most important thing is the understanding of the yamas and the niyamas. Why are right. we doing them? What's it for? And what do they really mean? For, for a start, uh -huh. yama is not a bunch of don't-dos. It's a big misunderstanding that the, the, the translation people give of, say, ahimsa, aparigraha, asteya, is non-violence, non-stealing, mm -hmm. non-attachment. Mm -hmm. But literally, the sound a, as in Sanskrit, means opposite of. Yeah. So when you say yeah. opposite of violence, it's not non-violence, it's gentle. Opposite of stealing is not non-stealing, it's giving. Opposite of, of, uh, of attachment is not non-attachment, it is freedom. So when yeah. you start talking about giving yourself yeah. in your own body, gentle, loving freedom, mm -hmm. you know, giving yourself loving freedom, you know, it's, it's different action. So that's yeah. the philosophy in action. And it has to start with you practicing with yourself and then you give it to other people. It's not a, you can, can you imagine a mother picking up a baby going, I'm not going to be violent with you? It just doesn't cut the mustard, does it really? <laughs> I'm not going to steal yeah. from you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not going to stick you to a wall. But I'm not. I'm going to give you freedom. I'm going to love you. I'm going to give everything to you. I reckon that we could probably talk for about 10 more hours easily or, or you could talk on the subject easily for that. And I, I could probably listen to it, but I'm going to have to wrap up soon. Um, can you tell us something about what else you do apart from yoga? What else excites you in life? Just to give. To me, I believe that yoga can come into every activity you do in your life. And like I said, for me, yoga means meditation. But for most people, to meditate in a stationary position is not very good because most people's life is very sedentary or ready. Mm. So I prefer to meditate in action, in motion. Or if I'm doing a literal yoga practice, I will meditate in the movement from one position to the next. And then when I get into a new position, I will continue to circulate the energy inside my body with what looks like breathing, but actually I'm mobilizing my whole spine. Looks like I'm breathing to other people, but to me, I'm feeling like I'm moving my whole spine, my mm. chest, my ribs, my abdomen. I'm not breathing much. But then I can also do the same meditation by doing 
things which look like simple joint movements, which looks like what you might say Tai Chi or Qigong or whatever. doesn't matter. The name's not important. I've been taught the same things by my Japanese teachers, my Tibetan teachers, my Chinese teachers, my Indian teachers. And in the end, it doesn't matter what they call it. I see it's all the same thing. And I've got teachers from, like I said, Tibet, teacher who comes from, the Professor Bim comes from 300 kilometers south of the Tibetan plateau. Another one, Master Zhenhua Yang, comes from 300 kilometers north of the Tibetan plateau. Surprise, surprise, they all teach the same exercises, except they call them different names, different languages, different colors mm. of their skin, different race, but the exercise is the same. So in the end, I mean, I'm not Chinese, I'm not Indian, I'm not Tibetan. I'm just me, and I'm happy that they all grace me with some intelligent exercise and I'm learning it. What do I call it? I call it my meditation being in the zone, being in the flow state. I'll call it meditation and yoga if you like, or I'll call it something else if you like. But in the end, I think if I'm talking to an athlete, I'll say, I can help you get in the zone. I can help you get in the flow state. I can give you good health with your physical, physiological, mental body. And this is what, what, and how are we going to do it? By applying the philosophy of yoga to create a circulation of good energy and loving information inside yourself so you can make a good model for yourself for the world and do that in the world. Mm. That's the simplest summary, I think. That's wonderful. Just to, just to end on a lighter note, when don't you do that? Have you got any, I always, people always like this question, do you have any guilty pleasures? Do you have any times when you, you don't, um, move with your consciousness and mind and body as one and all the cells aligned. By statistics, most of the people in this world, and I'm sure I'm one of them, spend about 95% of their day living unconsciously. And I'm hoping that I may be, you know, so in other words, only 5% of most people's day is actually conscious. So I'm hoping that maybe I'm up to 6 or 7 or 8%. I'm, I'm sure not you're higher than that. <laughs> Maybe. The thing is, the secret is, if people would like to be more conscious, which is what we really want, I think, to gather more consciousness, to be more conscious, the secret is be in love. You see, because when you're in love, say, for example, you've got a new girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, and they're about to come to your house for the first time, suddenly you go, oh my God, I better clean up the house. Mm. Or, what am I wearing? I better. Suddenly you're more aware of the things in your life because you're in love. Mm. But you don't have to have a boyfriend, girlfriend to be in love. You can be passionate about what you're doing. Be passionate in your practice. Be passionate with your job. And when you're passionate, which is also another word for tapas, according to Iyengar, then you're in love. Make love to yourself. Make love to the world. Then you're more conscious. You said you're coming up to 60. You definitely were born in the 60s, weren't you? Uh, 1960. I'm <laughs> lucky to say that. <laughs> it's rubbed <laughs> off on you. <laughs> but, but, just, <laughs> Just to end the interview, Simon, where can people find you? Um, you, um, uh, you can find my name is the simplest way. So you go to simonborgolivia.com or my company is called Yoga Synergy. And so we have yogasynergy.com, which I run with uh, my, my wonderful uh, colleague and business partner, Bianca Matchless, who also, like me, has spent many years with the Maha Gurus like Gayengar and the Ashtanga crowd and, um, and also Desika Cha, for example. And also she's an exercise-based physiotherapist as well. So you can go to yogasynergy.com or simonborgolivia.com okay. and we have live training when it's available and also lots of wonderful online courses which we so many resources there I very yeah. much recommend you check that out very um, very very it, informative website 
um, if you and go Instagram to as website, well. You can, so at Instagram, so and, Simon Synergy on Instagram and uh, my Facebook page. If you go to the simonborgolivia.com or any of your listeners go to simonborgolivia.com yeah. and just insert your um, email address, I, will, I can give you access to a bunch of my practice sequences and a set of notes and I can send you my newsletter and stuff like that. That would be great if people did that. You can subscribe to Thank either you. of my websites for that. Okay. Sort of thing. Thank you for being our guest, Simon. Oh, it's such an honor and a privilege to yeah, be your yeah. guest. I yeah. love what you do. And, you know, I love that you're sharing good energy and loving information in this world. Try, I'm happy try. to share it with you. And you're a, a true yogi of the, of the best kind in that respect. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Simon. I'll be in touch. Thank you.